Hey everyone, welcome to our second episode here in the year of our Lord 2024. This week we're going to be covering 1971's Australian classic, Walkabout. This one was one I wanted to put on the calendar for Jared and I to discuss because Nicholas Rogue is a director who is so singularly influential in his style of filmmaking that any of his works would easily yield a rich conversations in a whole myriad of directions. Also, I learned that Jared had not seen the films when we were discussing potential picks, so this felt like a perfect opportunity to do one of my favorite things, which is turn someone on to a film that has also meant a lot to me. Also, this comes as a start of a rogue pairing of sorts, as we will be discussing Don't Look Now next week, which is one that I had not seen, but Jared had seen, so it serves as a nice little companion piece. If you're enjoying what we do so far, please feel free to go give a like, subscribe, follow, thumbs up, high five, or whatever digital form of approval on whatever app you happen to be listening to this podcast on. Also, you can find Jared on threads at Jared Concessions and myself over on X at Dan Concedes. We'd love to hear from you out here in the rugged wilderness of film podcasting. As always, thank you so much for bending an ear our way. And without further ado, let's head on out to the Australian Outback with Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Dan. And I'm Jared. And welcome to our lush oasis in the middle of the podcast desert. This is Concessions. And other than some nice groundwater kind of sucked through uh, nature's straw to quench your thirst, what else are you drinking tonight, Dan? Well, I'll have you know I'm uh, I'm currently in a medical situation that uh, is called being very hungover. And so I've been uh, applying medicine called a <clears throat> ballast point speedboat salt and lime blonde ale. That's what the doctor seemed to recommend. He recommended it. It was actually very fortunate uh, when he prescribed it. Like that works perfect. I have some in my fridge, no need to go to my local drugstore to get some more for this illness. So that is what I'm curing myself with. It is a, uh, it's actually kind of fun. I'm being exposed to the glories of Costco and as, as this growing new quest for me, much like characters in the film walk about uh, a moment of self-exploration of my culture of suburban white people in Costco. Yeah, the they got this like 24 pack of uh, Ballast Point variety beers. And this is definitely the last one that I drink at the bottom of the box. But, you know, it's still pretty good. Um, just really not a big like lime in the beer salt in the beer kind of guy but you know if it's in the fridge and it's it's sitting there looking at me and the doctor prescribed it so here i gotta take a nice sip of it what about you jared what's uh what's keeping you away from the the hot hot heat of the australian outback here oh well this is a georgetown brewing lucille ipa nothing special pretty much your typical uh, uh hipster doofus seattleite ipa but you know what really, really, really irks me, Dan? Loose is when... seals? <laughs> no, yeah. They all are when I'm done with them, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's the end of this podcast, I suppose. <laughs> no, 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 no. What really irks me is when 
physicians prescribe over-the-counter medicine. Like, I couldn't have just Googled that. Oh. Like, how, <laughs> how much is my insurance paying you to just, well, I'll be right back, goes and, like, Googles it. Like, you should take Tylenol. <laughs> um, oh, man, that's the worst. I wish once, though, at least once, that my goddamn primary care provider would prescribe me an alcoholic beverage, particularly one with salt and lime. To me, that sounds delicious and might be the first one that I cho- chose out of that Costco pack. <laughs> well, that's what the that's what the joy of the variety pack is. And oh, and also another small uh, hipster doofus white guy uh, complaint about the variety pack. Is whenever I'm feeling, you know, saucy, I want a variety of beers. I go look at the variety packs at like, I don't know, like a, a Ralph's or a Kroger or whatever. And they're always like, here's our local brewery variety pack. Here's three different IPAs and a pale ale. And it's like, oh, here's our IPA hop madness pack. And here's our four different hop profile IPA variety pack. That's not a variety. It's just all IPAs taste the same. The same. I mean, they they taste different, but it's like give me give me some weird shit. I'm trying to find some novelty here. Yeah, like a, a nice stone, like pineapple IPA. I guess <laughs> or the, that doesn't taste the same as this thing I'm drinking. Well, other than you know what you've been destroying your liver with, what have you been destroying your soul with with uh, wonderful media this last week, Jared? Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure the only movies that I've watched this week are Walkabout, which we'll speak about at What a length. coincidence, me too. Yeah, it's crazy how that works. Almost like we planned this. <laughs> and then the other one is Moonstruck, which we're recording in just a few days. So I actually haven't watched any movies that we're not going to speak about at length uh, shortly here. Uh, but what I read this week, and uh, a surprising amount of kismet came along with it, is I read the memoir by bassist extraordinaire flea uh from the red hot chili peppers his memoir acid for the children and so yeah talk about kismet serendipity cosmic coincidence whatever you want to call it in the first five to ten pages of his book he's talking about his upbringing as a you know as a child in australia and he mentions walkabout and how Rogue really managed to capture the spirit of Australia and all of its majesty and danger. It's just wild, man. Like, uh, this was one book. I, well, I read a few books this week, but that's this is the, like, the most substantial one that I read. Uh, actually, I also read Walkabout. And hmm. yeah, what do you know? Two of the books that I uh, read this week mentioned Walkabout. What a, yeah, what a cosmic coincidence, especially when you read Walkabout referring to Walkabout. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to admit, just me picking up some random like you know, yeah. musicians memoir and he almost immediately mentions walkabout. That's a that's a little bit like that's some you know some evidence that we're living in a simulation, is it not? <laughs> I didn't know Flea was Australian. Uh, yeah, he was born there. I th- want to say that he moved to the states when he was still really little, like six or seven or something. And then his dad and his sister went back to Australia shortly after uh, his parents got divorced. So he was. You know, he would go and visit them quite a bit. So, yeah, he grew up fairly Australian. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Because, I mean, especially Red Hot Chili Peppers, they just seem, you know, died in the wool Californians. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. As the, as their lyrics would have you believe, right. um, Flea didn't, well, didn't actually, his family didn't move to California until he was almost a teenager. They were yeah. in New York for a while. But the book is good. He's a f- amazing writer, which... 
you know, uh, many, many people would consider Flea to be the best bass guitarist, period. And just the fact that he has that stature in one art form, but then he's also a fantastic writer. He's also a really capable actor. He's also a, a literal master of the jazz trumpet. Uh, yeah, the dude just got the, the amount of talent for like 10 people, you know, <laughs> usually it's spread across like 10 people and he got it all. Greedy of him, selfish, yeah. really, to yeah, hoard but, up all that talent. But then the book, <laughs> and I love this, kind of a troll move, or, you know, it's probably just what was in his heart, like the story he wanted to tell. It ends right before he forms the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's literally a book like about his you know, first 20 years or whatever. Mm. And uh, I highly recommend it, man. It was good. It's heavy. There's some dark shit in there. And um, he's so he's such an empath and seems so just like a sweet guy and uh lived a lot of life even in those first 20 years so uh yeah acid for the children good stuff what about you man what did you take in did you watch something that also made you feel as good as acid for the children made me feel oh, the, the feel good film of perhaps a century you may all know it i kicked off or ended october with you know just something on a light note just kind of wanted to get on out and enjoy the rest of the year it's a uh, this little Italian flick called uh, Salo or 120 Days in Sodom. You know that uh, it's a little, uh, fun little family flick. Uh, about It's really about found family and the people who get together uh, under unusual circumstances and really have, have unique experiences with one another. No, if anyone doesn't know Salo or 100 Days in Sodom, usually it's 120 or 120 Days in Sodom. It's always put on lists when you look like what's the most fucked up, like crazy, depraved movie that you could watch. And this list is or this film always winds up on the top five. So it's definitely one of those. Oh, and it's really hard to find. Like you cannot get it on legitimate streaming sources, which, um, of course, I watch it on a legitimate streaming source. There aren't any other ways to see it. So somehow I managed to sneak through that. Because there are no other websites other than Netflix and Hulu, you know. Um, but no, I watched it on Halloween. And, you know, I was expecting, like, horrors beyond my comprehension. And, yeah, I got a lot of that. But, honestly, the you go into it thinking you're going to watch, like, something that makes torture porn blush. Or something that makes French ex extremity look light. And it's like, really, the visuals weren't as upsetting as I anticipated. Now, there was... There is there is the poo eating scene, the multiple. The, those were not fun. And I I made sure I was done eating <laughs> at that point. Um, but no, like what I think really sets it apart from like all this other quote unquote like extreme cinema is this movie is like so it was uh, the director Pasolini. He was a gay man growing up in Italy that went all the way through all of. The, the descent into fascism and then the post-war era in Italy too, which like still had plenty of fascism in it. So it's just like absolutely charged with like rage at not only the, you know, the literal fascists and the people that are easy to point the finger at, but like all of the, like the more spineless people that sat in the middle and let it happen by either collaborating directly or not stopping it at all because you know, when you're like middle class or upper, upper middle class and you're doing well enough, you'll hold on to whatever crumbs you have as like people committing some of the worst atrocities imaginable will will toss, you know, a couple cookies down to you so you'll play ball. And you're seeing how that happens in real time. And he's 
he, he actually is drawing from a story from the 19th century, which is kind of bizarre. I, I figured this was like maybe an account from actual uh, fascist Italy. But he, yeah, it's just so viscerally angry. And I think that's part of what makes it so disturbing. Because like in that fury, he's trying to poke at you. Like it's sort of a Rorschach test where you're watching and you're thinking like, well, what I do? Where like... Yeah if I'm one of the victims, if I'm one of the collaborators, like where would I fall into that? And like, you don't, no one comes out of this one, (laughs) no pun intended, clean at all. And uh, I can totally see and totally understand why someone would watch this. And it's just like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. This has no artistic value. I cannot engage with it. And I'm like, yeah, it ain't for everyone, but for that small chunk of people that like can, Un, not understand i hate that's always sounds patronizing but can, can stomach it at all and like yeah I, I gotta see past just like the surface level horrors to like what it's actually trying to convey which is i would argue even more upsetting somehow yeah when right the, making people eat shit was the less upsetting thing about that film so yeah say hello well, or 120 days in sodom it, and check it out when it, you have a week to kill <laughs> yeah absolutely and if it helps the feces on screen in the film is actually chocolate and marmalade mixed together. <laughs> and some of the actors complained that it was gross and too sweet. Oh, <laughs> uh, look at that. Look at Dan, Dan right now. If you, you can't see Dan, but he has a shit eating grin on his face right now. Oh my. Uh, I also did hear, um, just uh i was reading some commentary on it and history of it i was like i guess like the actual production was a wonderful time kind of like when we were talking about other than the chocolate and marmalade yeah no i think that was the worst thing they oh my god sickly sweet oh my god you know who who would be perfect to cast in a salo remake paddington bear (laughs) he loves marmalade oh who wouldn't love to see that crossover someone Hey, Someone they got another padding coming out. Line. Oh, yeah, but it's not directed by the same guy because the guy is directing Wonka with Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, we'll see. Excuse me, Tim, Timo, Timothy Chalamet. Timothy? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, enough of uh, shit eating and uh, Australians. I didn't know were Australians. Let's talk about a British guy that made a movie about Australia called Walkabout from 1971. Uh, it was directed by Nicholas Rogue. Uh, you might also know him from Don't Look Now or Man Who Fell to Earth. Those are two big ones that people know him. I mean, and this one, that's for sure. Uh, it was written by Nicholas Rogue and Edward Bond. It was based on a short story by, uh, I would call it a short story, wouldn't you? Um, Novella? I mean, novella. It, it depends. Like, uh, It's like 120 pages long. That That might even be a novel, but a very short one, but it's at least a novella. Yeah, it reminds me of like if you the the novels that you would read when you're in like fourth grade, where it's novel length yeah. for a fourth grader. Yeah, it was like uh, as long as a goosebump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An animorph, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it was written by James Vance Marshall, and it stars Jenny Auditor, Auditor, Aguter. God, I, I've heard her pronounce her name recently. Agater. Agater. Jenny Agater. Lucas or Luke Rogue, which is Nicholas Rogue's son, and David Golpalil. Uh, the editors, which I thought was uh, significant to leave in here, too, is Anthony Gibbs and Alan Patillo, because the editing, I think, in this film is just as central as the direction, the stars or yeah. the uh, 
you know, the writing itself. It's so integral to it. Uh, so, Jared, kick it off with um, you have not seen Walkabout. I put it on the list and said you must see this or else. So give me your history walking into this film around like Nicholas Rogue, what you knew about this film going in general, like just your viewpoints on like, oh, 70s Australian films. What am I here to expect? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you said, I'd never seen Walkabout or even heard of it until you brought it up. Uh, you had brought it up quite a while back and I didn't even notice that it was by the same director as Don't Look Now until um, I want to say around the time we decided to do Don't Look Now on the pod. I was like, oh, it's the same guy as Walkabout. That's so cool. And very different films. But I'd, I've not seen any of his other films other than Don't Look Now. And I still have not. Uh, as far as Aussie film, not a lot. You know, there's that whole sort of auteur, like, like new wave of Australian auteurs that happened in the early 70s. Some would even argue that even though this movie was not made by Australian people, some people would argue that this movie kind of kicked off that whole thing. Um, others might uh, might say that Picnic at uh, Hanging Rock by, um, is it uh, Peter Weir, I think is his name? I think that's uh, right, I'll check it. Yeah, please fact check me on that. But yeah, I, I haven't seen many of the movies that are associated with that movement. And, you know, unless you count George Miller and like, you know, Mad Max, I, I guess it is Peter Weir. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool, cool. But yeah, you know, obviously I love Mad Max. That's going to be well documented on this podcast. But other than that, I mean, most of the Australian movies that I've seen in my life are horror films. Hmm. Uh, in the in the aughts and uh, ever, ever since the aughts, uh, the Aussies have really cranked out some stellar horror movies. Wolf Creek, The Babadook. Lake Mungo, very recently talked to me, The Loved Ones, uh, probably the granddaddy of all Australian horror movies, the original Saw. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just uh, not not a huge amount of exposure to Australian cinema at all. I mean, this is, even though this movie is not, you know, it's made by a bunch of Brits, this is like the most Australian movie <laughs> I think I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Have you not seen Wake and Fright? Because that's another nope. horror-ish movie that's from the 70s in Australia. No, I haven't seen it. Ah, uh, that's a fun one. Yeah. I think uh, I want to I think I want I want to make it a point to watch Picnic at Hanging Rock because Peter Weir's career, if you just look at his filmography, it's like, oh my God, just like home run after home run after mm. home run after home run, man. Like no all killer, no filler for Peter Weir. And uh, you know, he really got that kicked off with Picnic at Hanging Rock. And I've heard it is quite uh, unsettling as well and just a really beautiful film so that's my first recommendation of the night is to myself watch <laughs> Picnic at Hanging Rock because you'll probably like it Jared yeah that's how I also feel about Picnic at Hanging Rock where it's always like sitting there I was like why have I not checked this out yet like it seems so foundational to so many other things I like so why not go to the source yeah absolutely uh what about you Dan so I know you you know you obviously suggested this movie so I assume it's a movie that you liked previously to this week so what when did you first encounter Walkabout or, or other films of Nicholas Rogue and kind of similarly what's your level of exposure to you know the classics of Australian cinema so with Walkabout specifically the first time it came to my attention would have been back in 16 2016 i lived out in west australia for a while in perth and that was just like i met some people who are lame like me and like films and that was always the one that they would chuck out I was like oh if you want you know to see australian cinema 
this is definitely a good starting point, along with Picnic and Hanging Rock, Wake and Fright, yeah, the Mad Max movies, stuff like that. And I kind of, I just never really got around to it. And uh, eventually, one of my favorite film podcasts that I was listening to at the time, it was uh, Wisecracks Show Me the Meaning, which it's now discontinued, but they did an episode on Walkabout. And sometimes with podcasts, I really like when, like, if I like them enough, if they do an episode on it, it's like, well, I'm going to watch that movie now so I can listen to the episode and be caught up. So that was, that must have been a year or two ago when I watched it. And yeah, it was, uh, it jumped out and grabbed me immediately. Um, I understood why it was made or like why I had such waves, why people consider And yeah, to answer your question, yeah, Australians consider this a very Australian film. It's not a controversial take to, to lump this in with the rest of those. And yeah, I really loved it then. And then I immediately moved on and watched The Man Who Fell from Earth just to get a little bit more rogue in my life. I think I went through like a short stint of just hammering a bunch of classic Australian films. I actually met the original Mad Max I have not seen yet. Uh, I put it on for about 15 minutes and I think I was just kind of tired or bored or something and just turned it off and never came back to it. Um, so that's one that I, I got to get uh, back to at some point. Uh, but what's funny is I don't know about for you, uh, but like Australian culture for me and the Australians I met are really annoyed that this is the case is starts and ends with Steve Irwin growing up. So like, that's how I thought every Australian mm. was, was like, you know, crikey and like, oh, look at this Sheila over here. And uh, to I, like the, the guy who I lived with in Australia, he hates Steve Irwin, not because of Steve Irwin. But because of how everyone comes to Australia and thinks that everyone's just supposed to be Steve Irwin and he's sick of it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I can totally see that. I mean, Steve Irwin, I think, kind of arrived in the, you know, the greater kind of global pop culture zeitgeist at a time where that sort of stereotype I was already here from the 80s, you know, Crocodile Dundee oh, yeah. and, you know, them quote like the Dingo H.O. Baby on, on, <laughs> on uh Seinfeld for me like like when I think of like my first exposure to a, like an Australian character I think of Rocco's modern life um <laughs> but yeah Steve Irwin like you know he didn't like he didn't like really he wasn't the progenitor of those stereotypes but he really played into them didn't he and yeah and I mean I, I feel like that's just how he is as a guy and it was just kind of like right place right time but like growing up that's the only main source of australian culture that i got so i just assume that's how australians are where i i, I bet it would be the same as if someone grew up only on like john wayne movies or something and came out to the states and assumed that that's how we all were yeah i mean i'm just like john wayne i don't know <laughs> about you uh i would not like to be like john wayne actually in very very few ways am i like john wayne and I, I prefer to keep it that way not a not a nice guy off camera yeah 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 you pr you'd prefer to be more like john wayne gacy <laughs> um, you know quite a quite a rock and a hard place right there i suppose uh but anyways uh so i wanted to lead off with this film where what i think is really interesting um Going from like what you said, the the children's novel that this comes from, that Nicholas Rogue somehow read that novel and this film came from it, mm -hmm. which you know it shares the same bones. But I think it's interesting when you read like the surface level. So you've never heard of this movie, and you just like go on Wikipedia or you go online and be like, okay, what's this movie about? 
it describes it as like the survivor or survival adventure story where it's the, these, you know, these two very civilized young children go out into the outback and must learn how to survive and have, and meet this Aboriginal boy. And they, you know, they, they, they learn from each other and rough, rough it in the wilderness where that, that is like, yeah, on paper, that is true. That is what the story is. But it, like, that's just, that's not what is getting conveyed through the screen. There's so much more on its mind than a strict survival story. And, uh, like the, the tagline for this film is a boy and girl face the challenge of the world's last frontier. I mean, this sounds like a Western pretty much where mm. the, what winds up on screen after you read all that is like nothing like that, or at least I don't feel like it is. No, not at all. And, and one of the cool, like the best things about this movie that struck me is just how quickly it becomes not a survival movie. Mm. Like, just kind of comical that just how how immediately the survival drama is just made obsolete after they encounter the aborigine boy like he's just so like on it with like this is just second nature for him to to survive out there that it just becomes like oh okay i just want to watch these kids hang out and try to understand each other this is cool yeah it's like i mean yeah they can join like this is pretty easy i can just i'll just cook up a little extra meat i suppose whatever like yeah that is interesting i didn't think about that that not only is it not the focus but it becomes literally not a problem after by the time he arrives on the story like that that problem is solved and now you have more interesting like interplays between the two the two siblings and the boy uh that that really is what the the remainder of it is and i think this is a very interesting case of like translating something from uh, a written word to the visual medium because like that it's really impressive that like how nicholas rogue read this story and pulled this film out of it like when you went back because you read the you read the the children's novel afterward like me as well Mm -hmm. and like I just don't, how did he read that story? And it's like, oh, I know what I'm going to do with this. Like, did you see those seeds in there or like, what, like, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the, the heavy thematic stuff is sort of hinted at. Um, We're going to get into a lot of it in detail soon, but the things that jump out to me are, for instance, just the characterization of how the white boy and the black boy kind of hit it off and they're like friends because the white boy hasn't been exposed to nearly as much white supremacy or racism indoctrination as his older sister has yet. And she's just like immediately like, you know, what, like water, you know, water. Yeah, yeah. And the little boy, like, you know, takes the time to like pantomime and try to meet him at his, at his level where the older sister is already sort of past the point of no return of thinking of herself as different or better or the normal yeah, yeah of the two right and that's that's right from the book right mm-hmm. um a lot of that stuff is there and it's not nearly as nuanced we just get to see inside of everyone's brains so like it's just totally spelled out explicitly for us exactly what to take away from it and the movie and I just between this and don't look now the way that rogue just uses the cinematic language and uh what you know we think we know about how a movie is supposed to be edited or shot or you know the way dialogue is supposed to present itself and all that sort of thing it's just 
it's so incredibly nuanced, like how he gets a lot of these messages in there silently or um, through the use of just clever editing and, and that sort of thing in compared to, you know, the book is short. It's meant for kids. Literally, we just are privy to all of these thoughts. And it's a different, it's a different beast. Like there's the, the, the movie is far more ambitious, but I do think that a lot of the bones are there and the movie really couldn't exist without, you know, the, the foundational text. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that where I guess like I, I'm always really fascinated, especially when turning uh, an official short story or just a shorter written tale like this one into a full feature film. Um, Two that I think of that jump right out of my mind are I love Murakami short stories and Drive My Car and Burning are both based off relatively short, thin stories. And it gets interpreted and it gets stretched out in other er, in very interesting ways. And I, I really do think that there's something to be said about short story adaptations. I think I really need to start being more keen about when it comes to checking out new films. But what you're saying about how the girls like chauvinism is more locked in. I, I actually, from experience in my own life, like growing up in the suburban Midwest, I remember this was a long running joke uh, that people from the Midwest or the suburbs have no culture. They have no, they're essentially neutral. And there is like a very, very deep amount of chauvinism there to think that if you have no culture, that means it's so ubiquitous. Oh, you mean like national chauvinism, like racial chauvinism. You're not talking about like gender. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Like that, like a suburban Midwestern kid is like the pure neutral. He doesn't have any culture. He doesn't have an accent. He's literally just a guy. And anyone that acts different than them they're offshoots. They're the abnormalities where your suburban uh, white kids and outside of Chicago, that's that's the standard. That's the norm. Mm. I can tell you Midwestern people have an accent. <laughs> Did I mention it on the show about the guy in Chicago and how he pronounced the word ayahuasca? <laughs> ayahuasca. <laughs> he like, oh, yeah, we're going to do some ayahuasca. It's going to be great. But no acid <laughs> for me, just some ayahuasca. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I already talked brought that up on the show. Uh, but but yeah, it's just it's wonderful like in the in the book it is so just explicitly stated, but in the movie there's great like medium shots that are almost like a proscenium kind of stage type of shot where the the two boys are like sort of mirrored. They're they're crouching or squatting in the same position and they're look they're facing right at each other and they're right in the center of the frame really symmetrical and then the girl is way off to the side mm. not participating in the composition of the image really she's like breaking apart the um the synchronicity or or the just the the like perfection of the composition and it's it happens quite a bit throughout the movie and that's just one small example of cinematic language being used to really imbue this movie with thematic heft where in you know the novel is kneecapped by just being words on a page but uh very 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 like unsubtle words on a page (laughs) and once again this was designed for you know people probably the ages like 10 to 12 to 15 or something like that so you know you got to kind of cut to the chase a little bit uh but yeah picking up on what you were saying about like how he uses the cinematic language for themes. That was the thing that really jumped out to me is how the Alpac is shot and how Sydney is shot. And the ways that he kind of, how do I, 
Like he he shoots them in ways that we are not conventionally used to. Um, and the thing that you see in especially like revisionist westerns or new, uh, newer westerns today, where you know this is a '70s, so this I guess revisionist westerns were coming out in the '70s too. So maybe this was something that Rogue might have been aware of. Is the idea that like even though the desert to us in our eyes like looks like this dead barren place, a it's full of life. It's full, like it's teeming with not only natural activity, but human activity. Uh, but it's just not conducive to our particular way of uh, living in our lifestyle. And I think that this film really highlights that excellently um, in, you know, the way that they shoot wildlife, the way that they shoot the animals, the way that they shoot, um, you know, uh, Aboriginal people within it and Australians within it. Um, and even there's some, the only like, I would say surreal shot is like those colonial uh, Brits on the camels and stuff going through the outback. I thought that was an interesting touch too. Um, yeah. I mean, what were you seeing with like the way that the outback was shot and even compared to, I'm sure you have stock images of the out, the Australian outback in your head that you grew up with. And it doesn't look like this. Yeah. Well, lots of the crocodile hunter. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think that, most non-Australian people, or at least like most Americans, when they think of Australia, they do think of like the lush wildlife and the dangerous uh, wildlife in Australia, right? It's almost like a meme, like everything is trying to kill you in Australia. And I've always had that image of Australia personally. And this movie really embodies it. Like uh, it's, there's so many inserts of just animals in their natural habitat of, you know, the gorgeous vistas and then, you know, a lizard eating another lizard that's the same size as it is. And just like how like horrific that is, but how just natural and interesting that is at a certain point through watching the movie, like there's so many of those inserts and establishing shots and stuff. And I'm like, wow, it feels a bit like a nature documentary, but where the primary subjects are human beings, mm -hmm. that they're just existing alongside all of the rest of the natural world in this movie, where very few movies really capture that, like really actually capture human beings in the context of the natural world. And uh, this movie goes to incredible lengths to, to do that effectively. And it happens quite a bit. And we'll, we'll get into some more of the specifics when we kind of dig into other topics. But yeah, it's definitely striking how just how many, you know, kind of candid images of animals being animals there are in this. And then, of course, you get hunting. You get David. Uh, I'm just going to call him David because the actor is David Gulpalil. Like you get David, you know, hunting kangaroo. You get David hunting, uh, you know, various lizards and that sort of thing. And that also kind of feels similarly to when like animals are hunting each other in a nature dock. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd, I'd never seen any movie quite um, portray wildlife that way. Really. I'm trying to think of anything else that comes close. That's in a, like a drama like this, a more traditional narrative and not just a documentary or a movie starring animals. <laughs> um, and I can't really think of any. <laughs> so other than Madagascar, you know, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to, to your point, I think that that like really drives home the scenes when they're in the city or when there are Australians out in the outback and stuff like that. Like it looks so absurd. Like, it looks uh, really grotesque when you see 
uh, Western culture in this context. Um, and I guess maybe because I particularly grew up in a slightly older part of the country where we've been, you know, we essentially changed the, the makeup of the land so severely that it's almost unrecognizable to what it used to be. Um, and, and there are still parts of the U.S. now, especially in the American West, that look like this as well. Um, but it makes a giant city like Sydney or that uh, that random mining town at the end. I remember when they like when they at first pops up, like it was this weird, like kind of like the dream is over. And now it's back to this weird, even stranger reality that there's like just the, the these like 1950s suburban looking homes in the middle of the Australian outback and like. How yeah. ridiculous that, that is. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that, at least in the American context, I know that a lot of these cities are built like that, like uh, Phoenix or Las Vegas, even down here and like your San Diego's and L.A.'s and stuff like that. Cities that just are in locations that are not designed to don't have the natural resources to comfortably uh, support so many people or living this particular lifestyle that we are down here that like there's this kind of arrogance on display of anglos of colonizers that uh is just kind of uh, leaves its scars all over the place and yeah the, especially the, the 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 little toy factory or whatever you want to call it, the little shotskis that they're making like that that felt really weird and strangely upsetting to me when that just kind of popped up out of nowhere and uh yeah i don't know it just make it it shows how unnatural uh are we are in that context and, and it also even shows that like like you're saying it, there's not too many examples of films that do this so well that put human beings in their context with nature so seamlessly because like i think most like western people so therefore like authors and our artists and stuff like that we see ourselves as distinct from nature like that's enlightenment philosophy right there where yeah there, there's there's the world of man and then there's world of nature and it is man's job or his almost his responsibility to conquer and control nature, not to like work within it or work alongside it. And, you know, you, you see that a lot of the colonial projects that still are, that are still with us today in Australia is no exception to that, where um, like the camels I was talking about that were shown, they're not indigenous to Australia, where in our head, we think camels, deserts, like, oh, that makes sense. But like, we brought them out there. And now there's feral Australian camels that were introduced out there as a, essentially an invasive species. Um, so I think Rogue was pretty um, deliberate about putting in that one strange, like mirage shot of colonial uh, Brits going through the desert in their camels and just showing how like, not that we, not that like, oh, we don't belong here. We should be kicked out. But like what we did and like what was there before and what happens when we just impose not only our you know physical bodies, but our way of life upon another people uh, to, to like paper it over in a way. Yeah, yeah, and and more to your point of uh, that sort of threshold or wall between Western civilization being viewed as the 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 kind of the dominant or the the standard, and compared to kind of life out on the bush. This movie is constantly reminding us that even though, not to mince words, like white people. <laughs> Uh, sort of look at, at indigenous cultures as savage or animalistic in one way or another. 
really like all of the savagery or violence that exists to you know to survive out there it persists across that divide that you're describing and the movie shows it in so many cool ways there's the the kangaroo hunting scene juxtaposed with the butcher and all the ground meat and you know at a certain point that the editing is so quick and so um kind of specific that sometimes you can't tell exactly which one you're looking at for a couple seconds right or um i think of there's that really upsetting scene where the big game hunters are out there and they mm. shoot a water buffalo and then david plays it back in his head and he, you're sort of seeing his imagination and you see the water buffalo get back up they play the scene in reverse right and then it calls back to a similar scene that we saw earlier where the the girl is remembering her dad's suicide and she sees him get back up oh, and it's like yeah. there's like constant rhyming between the quote-unquote savage world and the quote-unquote civilized world in the editing and in the points of view of these two very different kids the you know the aborigine boy and the the you know the english girl and it happens so frequently and uh i it, it gets me every time i also think of that really wonderful montage where there's the juxtaposition between the children being children playing in the tree mm. and that tree is just becomes this constant symbol of, of, you know, our relationship with nature. And then we also then see, um, see some Aborigines uh, folks that are just like playing with the car because that's just as interesting to them. And uh, just that sort of montage edited so immaculately and so playfully and thoughtfully really took me back to some some scenes from don't look now that also mm. kind of juxtapose to sort of contradictory or complementary uh actions through the editing uh so so neat <laughs> yeah and um to your point about like the the tree scene and the the car scene i i read it as like as foreign as a randomly blown up car in the middle of the outback would have been to an aborigine uh so is a tree to people born in a city or to yeah. uh someone born in uh like a quote-unquote civilized context like they're exploring this with the the playfulness of like something they just don't engage with that intimately or that deeply and so i thought that juxtaposition was very it did a very good job of highlighting the, that, that, that like alienation that's almost going on that, that they're getting to reconnect with a little bit too, which I think that's a lot of what the editing is doing is by erecting these barriers between the two. And, you know, you constantly, you're seeing walls, uh, bricks, like barriers, divides, doors, windows all over this film. And by constantly, crashing them against each other you're not only showing how yeah stark the differences are between the two but how they are not like they're easily traversable or they're much more easily traversable as we think and the the divide isn't as hard and fast as we feel in our minds yeah um and especially i liked at, at like the opening scenes where when we get to i think that's sydney i think it's modern day or uh contemporary sydney yeah yeah it's contemporary sydney and they're playing more Aboriginal music, and they're uh, and then when they cut away from it, then they're playing like loud industrial sounding music, and they're kind of crashing this all together as to almost make them 
one and the same, which in, in a sense, I mean, Australia is one in the same. It is both at the same time, very similar to much of North, well, actually all of North America there. Uh, I think that's why, particularly for me, a lot of Australian history or Australian culture is so easy to glean onto because it's so close to our own, or at least the the themes rhyme so closely that I can uh, I can very easily grasp onto them. Like right now, I'm reading this book uh, about uh, what's essentially the Australian Jesse James, and it, it's like this you know pseudo memoir by him. And everything I'm reading through this is like, yeah, this could have been set in like Colorado, and it would play out just about the same. Yeah, yeah. If uh, I mean, and you, I'm sure that there's there are plenty of examples in the Eastern world that we just don't have quite the same amount of exposure to. Like, I would assume that this story is at this point in most corners of the globe pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, you probably could have made a similar story in like South Africa or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that would have, you know, maybe even, even more weight. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, um, you know, I mean, com- comparing, you know, uh, the, the way that, that colonizers have treated the indigenous in one part of the world compared to another, we could probably argue all day. But yeah, when, when I think of South Africa in particular, in particular, and just like that level of apartheid, mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah, I think the story would would play really well. But, you know, I'm sure that there are native cultures like in all corners of the globe that are, you know, uh, are, are mostly still untouched by quote unquote civilization. And like, I'm sure I'm sure that, you know, you could kind of, you know, show a coming of age through this lens, hmm. you know, basically anywhere. I'm actually... I'd be interested to look at that, see if anyone tried like a North American walkabout or a South African walkabout or, you know, some other different context. I mean, because, yeah, this story does have some very universal themes that we've seen riffed on before plenty of times. Uh, but it's just the the unique combination of aspects. Like, I actually do appreciate that they're not. Aus- well, they're Australian because they're, they're Australia, but they're British. So, like, they're even more of like, ooh, the the imperial core of high culture. Um, right. But you see probably the most savage act is probably committed by the the old or the oldest British guy in the film, the father, who uh, essentially I mean, I was under the impression that he was shooting his children to hit them. I don't think he was threatening them or like being uh, cheeky oh, to scare yeah. them off. No, no. He he took them out there to murder them. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, commit suicide and like in a very graphic way. Um so really, the I've, and you're constantly seeing like the most savage behaving characters are like the people that own a se- ostensibly what's a sweatshop in the middle of the outback. The people with like the most what we would describe as like savage or low behavior are the Anglo's in this film. Oh yeah, there's like this really really sad but delicious irony at the end where they make it to that that oh the mining you know, town. Yeah, the mining town that you were describing earlier at the end. And we've just watched them. We just watched this this indigenous boy, like, take care of them, you know, like, like really nurture them, love them so selflessly, you know, ultimately selflessly, right? And then as soon as they get back to quote unquote civilization, like the first thing that they get greeted with is just like abject rudeness. Yeah, yeah. Um, just real, real sad and ironic at the end, like a pretty, pretty brilliant punchline. Well, and that it's, this movie has, 
Yeah, and it's really telling that uh, the reason for the rudeness or the standoff is like, this is private property. This is my thing, and you yeah. do not have it. Where, um, you know, the, our particular uh, understanding of private property, especially in the Anglosphere, is something that we have developed, and not every other culture has that same idea. And uh, I would, wouldn't be surprised to, I don't know too, too much about Aboriginals, uh, idea of private culture or private property and how they, you know, how they share resources and stuff like that. But I bet to uh, the Aboriginal boy in this, he, it's probably not, it wasn't even a thought. It's, he, he probably didn't even think this was like doing a kindness. It's just like, this is just what human beings do for one another. We take care of one another because he doesn't have these, once again, walls erected of private property of like, this is mine. This is not yours. We do not share. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah, that idea of kind of value outside of the self um, gets ex explained a lot more in the book than it does in the movie. And, and this, uh, you know, we, we've done some talking about kind of the failure to communicate that, you know, that the children have in this movie and we've kind of glossed over part of it, but I know we, I know we wanted to talk about it more but you know, obviously, like the kind of the climax or like the turning point where the movie really gets sad is, uh, you know, that uh, that mating ritual or that courtship dance that the boy performs. Uh, we see him kind of throughout the movie realize more and more that this is a potential mate. I feel like at the beginning, like he doesn't even realize that she's female, right? Because like he, you know, they're so alien to him. Mm. But then when he does, and like he. Uh, he you know gets rejected outright by the courtship dance in in their culture they view that as that rejection as like a really really clear sign that uh you know they're not meant to be alive mm. and uh um like if you know if, if you get rejected that way it means that you're you know you're not you know, it's, you're, you're not worth kind of carrying on and contributing to society. I mean, I and, felt that uh, way before when I was 17. I totally get it, man. And, <laughs> uh, but literally, uh, you know, th those uh, kind of Aboriginal people, they have an extraordinary ability to will themselves to death mm. uh, if they come to view themselves as unfit. And that sense of self that they have is uh, suffused by the way external actors view them. And so like, if uh, you know, the people around you uh, kind of aren't um, suffusing you with, uh, you know, kind of that positive reinforcement, people in that culture can literally just decide to die. Mm -hmm. And they do uh, I mean, like, that's, that's not... how selfless he is. <laughs> Yeah, and that's not even unheard of in Western context, too, of the idea of, like, married couples that are together for decades and decades. Like, you'll see once one uh, spouse dies, the other go is not far behind, too. Um, so this isn't, this is a, a human phenomenon that is, it's not like, oh, they're, like, mystical, like, creatures that have this higher plane of being because they're these noble savages or something. They're just deeply in tune with the... Uh, the, the, the natural social instincts of human beings that uh, I think we are much more alienated from nowadays. Yeah. Right. I mean, cause 
for lack of a better word, we're so self-obsessed. <laughs> and we're so sequestered off. I mean, that, that's what I loved about the way that um, their home was shot uh, at the beginning and at the end, where it's the same apartment complex, essentially. Um, yeah. It, it so clearly looks like effectively like human storage containers where like everyone's right. just kind of in their own little separate box doing their own little separate thing. And that got me thinking too, that like, um, so the, the walkabout is a, uh, it's like a coming of age ritual as I understand it for, right. uh, young, I think it's just boys. I don't think women go on the walkabout. Yeah, but- 16 year old boys in those, you know, a- Aboriginal cultures, so yeah. But yeah, when they're you know like like any coming of age sort of ritual of that nature, the the idea is you go out, you get challenged, you learn something about yourself, you and when you come out the other side, you're you're brought into culture as a full member with full responsibilities. And I'm thinking about like our kind of coming of age rituals, which are things like you know you go to high school, and if you uh, if you're lucky enough, you go to college too, and you do all these things to become a quote unquote full fledged member of society. And especially in the 70s in Australia, so that you, uh, for the girl in particular, so that you can then be isolated in your own little box as a housewife and not interact with really anyone ever again. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting contrast that like the the way that we see ourselves as being a full-fledged member of society in a native Australian sense is being so integrated in the community where in the like Western Anglo Australian sense, it's essentially being alienated from your community and it's being uh, sequestered off in a way. Yeah. I mean, we, when we first see her, she is at school. She's got this like just pallid, just like zombified expression on her face. Like we see her in extreme close ups. Like we see like, uh, you know, we see the pores of her skin and we just see like just dead eyed in school. And then at the end, we sort of see her with that same expression mm, of her husband. Yeah. I don't think about that. Thinking back on, you know, what could have been mm-hmm. out there in the bush. And uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's really just sad, you know, by the end, like this, this movie is deeply sad, just like how things turn out for the boy and also for her you know i i feel like her little brother might be okay <laughs> like yeah you don't feel what like, happens to him i feel like uh he probably got to learn some valuable lessons at a young enough age that i would guess that he he probably grew up to be like a, a like a pretty solid dude quote unquote one of the good ones you know Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Real, um, real savior type. <laughs> uh, but that's interesting that you mentioned that, that, um, and you'd mentioned it earlier where, yeah, it's almost like the girl, the tragedy of the girl in this is that, yeah, she's almost too far gone, even at this young age of like, what? Yeah. She's probably portrayed as 15, 16, uh, high school aged. Um, yeah. And even at that point, she's pretty much portrayed as incapable of understanding this alternative point of view or this alternative way of being where all the onus is on the the aboriginal boy to uh adjust to them even though they're in the middle of the goddamn outback and she just keeps like insisting upon her way of speech her way of knowing what etiquette looks like i thought a really interesting one especially when in the the space of like communication in particular is there the the little boy is just like telling a story and you know the Aboriginal boy can't 
doesn't fucking understand a lick of English, but the boy just wants to communicate and just like wants to share something with him. And I'm sure like you, you've probably listened in on people speaking a language you don't know. Like you can still kind of get the emotional tones of it. And there is a communication that goes on. And he was, and you could tell he was, the kid was operating essentially on that level, but you constantly hear the girl policing the story and saying, it's like, that's not what's in the the, the proper story, the canonical right. tale. Uh, this right. is the real thing that you have to put in here because there's only one way that this story can exist and you cannot deviate from it. And it's such a, a different, and you know, that's, that comes from like our idea of like written tradition and right. that there is a canon and there's only one way that we can uh, understand something and everything outside of it is at least a lesser idea or that shouldn't be considered on the same footing where it co- contrasts that with oral uh, storytelling tradition where it's much, it's got much more malleability. It's much more playful. Yeah. You can, you can put in things, uh, your own spin on it and that's totally fine. Um, and yeah. it's, it's understood as not like necessarily better or worse than someone else's story, just a different interpretation. But the girl is constantly imposing this right. uh, outside force that feels extra ridiculous because they're in the middle of the outback. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, but then uh, contrast it even more drastically with uh, something that happens in the movie when they, they all start to, just make some uh, some rock wall paintings together, mm-hmm. and uh, those sort of barriers do get broken down with just uh, a, a more visual storytelling medium. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just Rogue being like, "My movie is better than a book." <laughs> it's him talking sh- talking a little shit about the written words. Like, yeah, wow, we need images. Well, look, yeah, look what's ca- look what we're capable. Uh-huh. We don't even. Uh, you know, you know what I I find like in this which is kind of following the same thread. I find it ironic and kind of a compelling way that. We, a Western audience, being told a story by Western storytellers can't be bothered to learn much about the actual walkabout tradition. Mm. Like the movie is called Walkabout. We're watching it happen, but the movie does jack all to actually fill us in on what the black boy is out there doing. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it really puts us in the shoes of like of the kids, excuse me, and like not kind of understanding like it i feel i find it ironic that we're sort of still subject to this western subjectivity in the movie well i thought that was a deliberate choice to be honest um yeah no it is it is uh, i i I, I find that like really compelling but it is a little ironic yeah yeah yeah. because i think it cultivates uh or culminates at the very end with the the mating ritual dance because it's shot in a way that when you first see it you're like i'm really not entirely sure what this guy's doing and it, it st- and you're, you're kind of in the same headspace as the girl as she's watching this, but like it becomes clear at yeah, least on yeah, like yeah. some level of what he's attempting to communicate. And it does make me think. And what, what do you think about this is do you think she genuinely didn't understand or do you think she was choosing not to or do you think it was kind of a combo of the two? I think she's genuinely ignorant. Profound, mm. profoundly, yeah. And do you think that's almost more tragic than if she kind of picked up what he was doing and is like, mm, no, 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 I'm not interested in this? Yeah. Because uh... there's two endings, basically. Because if she does understand it, she's given an offer to live this like different life that she's been exposed to, and you saw her warming up to in which, uh, certain ways, and then rejecting him for it, and that's a tragedy right. in and of itself. But then if she doesn't know at all, she can't even understand. That's even such a tragedy of like, she learns nothing. 
from this? Like nothing at all. I think she learned. I, th- I think she learns a lot from his death, though. Like I think that I think that if she's ignorant, she doesn't learn anything from like the act of his courtship ritual, his mm. his his dance. But I mean, we know for a fact that at the end, she's left with this image in her head of what could have been, and she's she's looking fondly back on what could have been compared to what you know her lot in life is as an adult at the end. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think she's she's choosing to reject him. But I do think that if she did understand, the outcome would have been the same, and she would say like, "Oh, you're you're like." asking me to marry you of course not i have to go home (laughs) yeah which is what happens in the book she like she gets it finally in the book and she's like i can't do that yeah you know Um, well and i thought that was also part of the i I think i like the reading of she either cannot understand or wasn't even gonna like allow herself to to even explore that idea so like not that she won't, it's almost a combination. She won't understand almost would be the better term because uh, then afterwards, like after he kills himself, like this person that she's developed a relationship with that you would think would be very upsetting, right? If someone killed themselves in front of you that you know and care about, she, they discover the road. And I, I always thought that was a, a really cool piece of sound editing where the sound editing in this is awesome throughout it. But mm-hmm. the moment her heel, once again, she's now back in proper shoes uh, it hits the road. It sounds it's really loud. Like they blow that sound up the moment yeah. her feet touches a road because now she's like back on track, back on to civilization. And she specifically t- tells her uh, her younger brother as she's you know obsessed with making sure that he looks clean and neat in the middle of the outback in case someone runs into them so they don't look like vagabonds, I suppose. But she's talking about returning to real things in real places and proper mm-hmm. things and proper people. So this this exposure, while she now has like these fond memories of this like jaunt in the outback, like I I kind of read the ending way more cynically, where you know the ending is her her it's now you know probably like five six years later she's a housewife she's got a husband who's basically like a mid-level manager at business corp in sydney <laughs> and he's talking about accounts and johnson and promotions and blah, 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 blah. and you know she, she, like you said she has this glazed look over her eye and she's thinking back to the the scenes of them swimming in the watering hole together and i think it's kind of i kind of read it in the same way not as her longing for it or thinking like that could have been an alternative life that is a live option that i didn't choose it's almost like if you've met these people that and it's it's incredibly tragic that I don't know they're like 40, 50, 60. It almost sounds like a Tennessee Williams play to be honest. And they're talking about like the last time they felt alive. And mm. it's like this novel experience that they had like in their early 20s, late teens or something like I don't know, they studied abroad or something, I don't know. And the the thing that it serves to do is not to um not to be a live option for them to explore a different way of being, but it almost locks them in their prison even more where it's like, well, I had my fun. I had my moment of rebellion and now I'm going to lock back into my little slot and, and at least we'll, we'll always have Paris, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That does seem what like she's sort of locked into, uh, at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, well, 
Moving along, you know, we, we talked quite a bit already about sort of that courtship dance and the the communication breakdown there. But the, the movie definitely uh, dwells quite a bit around, like, you know, these characters' sexualities, even more than what we've already discussed. Uh, I know you've, you've got a couple of topics here kind of around kind of that theme. Uh, what's What's on your mind in that regard? Yeah, so the first thing that, and I don't know, on your first viewing, I, I purposely didn't bring up any of my ideas so that you could go into this pretty uh, uh, blank, because it's such a subjective and impressionistic film. Like, you know, so many people can get so many different things. But I really felt this way watching it, that, like, there's something inappropriate between the father and the daughter. Like, like I don't know if anything explicit happened or if he actually acted out on it, but there right. just seems to be something not appropriate about the way he views her about the way he yeah. positions himself around her and and it's just suggestive enough that like yeah you don't think he's like touching her or anything like that right but right you do see this like obsession of some kind maybe yeah yeah and i think it's telling too that like you know the the youngest boy he's like no longer a baby he's starting to like actually show his gender and show that he's going to now be like another man in this family that will be taking the attention of this daughter who is also becoming more sexually mature as well. And it's also this a very like pr- particularly, I would say English kind of prudish idea of like this upper middle or middle-class English idea of like completely repressing all sexuality, no matter what, right. especially uh, within people like within not like full blown children, but like teenagers or young adults or people who are exploring their sexuality for the first time. Like that literally does not exist. You like, as far as like your stuffy English, like bean counter, like, no, that, that simply cannot exist. Um, right. And that was why I, I remember that was a really interesting thing that I read one time about like contemporary backlash to Freud and cause Freud's like most radical idea and the most interesting like response to it is that like Freud's idea is that we have sexual desire from birth, like from the get go, we have a form of what he calls libido. And yeah. you know, for the, the most classic way to see it is like, you know, you're horny and you want to have sex. Uh, but like libido can come out in so many different ways and children do express it out and he observes it and it, and it has basically been mostly observed that there's a libido in all of us at all times. And the interesting thing is like, uh, uh, like the conservative response to that at the time is like, uh, no, that's wrong. Uh, that's disgusting, perverted. And uh, like, we will not abide by this. And it's so wrong that we're going to ban it so that no one can read this where it's like, if it really, <laughs> if it really didn't show reality or the, like the reality of the human of human development of a subjective experience. And like, why would you have to hide it from everyone? You could just let it be out there and let everyone find it ridiculous. So it's like this strange denial that almost proves the point, you know? And I yeah. think I really see that with the father. And I think that like, has to be part of the reason why he commits suicide. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that would be a very convenient explanation uh, to the, you know, unfathomable actions that he <laughs> takes at the beginning of the movie. It also serves as a interesting comparison juxtaposition or kind of layer on top of uh, the black boy also killing himself over his desire for mm-hmm. the girl, mm-hmm. except his desire is very selfless and the father's is very selfish. If yeah. we are going to read it that way, uh, I, I, I'm kind of choosing to like, I know you put that note in there. I started thinking about that and I started really thinking like, yeah, it does like very much echo, you know, uh, echo each other. Right. So yeah, I think, I think there's definitely a lot there. 
And yeah, it's like, there's definitely, um, you know, just like going back to, you know, communication being impossible. Like, yeah, like, uh, just, just the way that, uh, you know, these two people coming from extraordinarily different cultures cannot communicate. Yeah. The, the English sexual repression that you described also makes communication impossible. (laughs) Yeah. Or the signs couldn't even be right if they were right in front of each other. Right. Uh, Right. Right. And that is interesting about like the echoes of it. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about like, um, about the idea of the, the the reason why the mining town or their their excuse for why they were still in hospital had to do with private property where I think like, A, you know, incest is inappropriate. Uh, just full stop. What This is an anti-incest podcast. For, oh, I was uh, just so thinking home. that. I was just thinking about how this is an anti-incest <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but it seems like his desire was wrapped up in possession and ownership. That like this is yeah. his daughter. Like, you know, it's the the classic stupid trope of like, well, when my daughter comes of age and she brings boys, I'm going to have my shotgun ready for anyone that tries oh, to date so my gross. daughter. And like, so weird and gross. Yeah, it just immediately like it immediately whenever I meet people, because now I'm old enough that like I'm I'm meeting people who have like literal infant girls, like like not even one year old babies. And they're talking about their baby growing up to be something fuckable i'm like what the fuck are you talking about don't who is who is this well uh just name their names (laughs) no i mean i'm not saying that that's what they say explicitly but when they're saying like when they're looking at their gorgeous baby daughter the first thing they're thinking about is the future people trying to fuck them and how he's going to get in the way of that i'm like why why does your mind go there what what's going on here with your relationship or your orientation towards this baby i don't know it's just fucking creepy to me uh it's something that's so normal for us or i think it's it's something that's going away but it's something that's normal in like western understandings of a relationship between a father and a daughter but contrast that with like the the other suicide in this which is the the black boy and his comes from the the you know the thwarted uh desire of something like you said much more selfless much more uh he's not looking to possess he's looking to no pun intended walk alongside uh her or something or to be a partner a companion where the father's orientation to her is entirely uh juxtaposed within ownership well yeah and and the black boy's uh you know perception of her is just like his perception of you know like everything in in his culture is that it's one with nature right like like she like you know courting hers is part of the natural order of things and granted it is a lot more natural because they're not related and the same age but uh, <laughs> uh but like but like literally natural and uh there's amazing cinematography and editing in the scene where they're all uh trying to sleep and the black boy's point of view uh, we were in his point of view, realizing that she's a potential partner. And you've got these this image of the tree. And uh, it, it's like a white tree. And like we see it, like her, her legs and her stockings look like the tree branches and vice versa. And like even uh, uh, the, 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 like it goes so far as there's like actual like yonic images of the tree. And uh, yeah, and the, the editing just kind of gets gets into a faster and faster clip where we can't tell if it's her legs or if it's the branches. And it's just like such a beautiful way to just demonstrate from his perspective that, you know, uh, humanity is one with nature, mm-hmm. uh, including, you know, our sexuality. And I thought that was pretty beautiful, like way to do that. 
Uh, definitely a lot, uh, a lot more nuanced than it is in the book. To keep yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it just got me thinking too that like you know one way to have gotten in the boy's head is you know through the book they just type it out and say in English this is what he's thinking this is what he's feeling. But in a film that would have really been uh, hammy, I almost would say. Or it's like it's. Oh, yeah. I think it's going back to what you're saying. It's like this is Western subjectivity. <clears throat> And uh, Rogue, I think, is purposely doing this to to show just how limited our, uh, you know, just how limited anyone's subjectivity is. They never translate what uh, the boy is saying. Like, he always remains inscrutable, at least from the point of direct language. But then he uses a cinematic language, like what you're saying. Like, you can understand the feelings <laughs> or the uh, the affect that is going on within him by the way that it's, like, cutting from, like, his subjective point of view, what's being then what's being shown afterward just through montage. I mean, it's basic montage theory right there, but it's, it's doing a very good job of something that I'm always really fascinated with, which like how people almost montage different ideas or symbols in their own minds. And when they crash together, what new meaning gets created? Um, so like, like what you're saying, it's like a uh, two branches of a tree coming together in a clearly suggestive manner and then a stocking and a leg like that creates a third image i think that's uh is that eisenstein i forget who's the one that uh developed the idea of like soviet montage but it's like it's like that one a it's that 101 and it's that just done to perfection to to really show like something a little deeper psychological of just like how we build meaning even though we come from very very different contexts and symbols can mean drastically different things like there are still like common core themes or core understandings of symbols that crash together for us to create meaning and you're seeing that occur from two wildly different contexts yeah well, you're seeing one you're seeing it occur one in a much more open way from uh the black boys perspective and one or and that seeks to not have barriers and go around the barriers and then from the the girl's perspective of seeing the barriers like that's what she's doing constantly is trying to build the walls up, and up yeah and higher and higher yeah. and higher and make sure that the symbols fit within these walls like no matter what consequences be damned yeah yeah absolutely and you know i i have like another i have a a question it's not really as much about sexuality as it, as it is about like nudity mm -hmm. so i have a question so when i was watching this i i noticed that there was sort of a like a gender role uh kind of difference in the way that nudity is used and i, I want to know if this is just plain old artistic sexism or or kind of traditional gender roles around nudity or if it uh has more to do with the difference between like a Western and an Aboriginal view of nudity, but it seems like like the the uh, the the scenes of her swimming naked have this sort of voyeurism, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's really focused on like her natural beauty and the natural beauty of the the, the surroundings. It was like a they, like the actress and Rogue have described it as a painting, right? Like very much like here's like a Western. Here's a Western, uh, like nude painting, basically. Mm. Whereas, like the, a Botticelli or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the painter they actually reference is uh, Sidney Nolan. Look up mm. the paintings of Sidney Nolan. Sometimes that's what they were trying to create in that scene. Um, but on the flip side, it seems that with the the 
uh, Aboriginal boy, like his nakedness is like utilitarian. Like Mm -hmm. his nakedness means agility, like the practical purpose of using his nakedness to more effectively hunt. And my question is like, does that say more about the sexism and the gender roles and like how nudity is perceived between the genders? Or is it more to do with like a Western view versus an Aboriginal view? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I couldn't speak for the Aboriginal view on nudity, um, <laughs> given by uh, not Aboriginal. Okay, nature. okay. More basic question: Like, do you think this movie just simply falls into the the traditional trappings of like this is the way that female nudity is used in Western art? Well, I think you might have been onto something when you were saying like he's utilitarian, she's you know more not ornamental, but like. I feel I feel like ornamental is the right word to use. Aesthetic, yeah, orna- like I don't know, ornamental may feels a little bit flattened, but yeah, I think it to your point. Um, I think it does highlight like, well, she's not she's of no use in this context. Like, right. what is her body going to do in the uh, the Australian outback? She doesn't know how to like age. You know, she's just like a not very strong sixteen year old girl, but like she has no skill set. Like her body can't yeah. do anything to help well, them she out. Doesn't even, uh, she doesn't even attempt to find a fish while she's going <laughs> for her swim. Yeah, like, yeah, at no point does she, like, he's clearly demonstrating all of this skill set that he's learned throughout his entire life on how to survive out here. And she's just kind of like, no interest in, like, oh, well, maybe I should chip in and, like, uh, how do you do this? Can I help? It, she just kind of is there. Um, and I don't know if that's what the film is trying to portray by that that long scene and and this can kind of get into one of our final points too we're like this is actually the biggest controversy of this film uh are yeah. is the way nudity is uh portrayed in this scene because i believe the actress was 16 when this was filmed and at the time it was legal but then yeah. it got uh the age of showing nudity on screen got moved up and now this became illegal and yeah. there was a whole rigmarole around this well yeah yeah, and in the UK, they any movie that you know kind of fell under you know that that previous you know well, okay by the previous guidelines, not okay by the current ones. That they, they went through, yeah, like sort of like a rigorous like kind of new. I'm trying. To, there's some there's like some specific ratings board or you know kind of censor board or that sort of thing. Basically, like is this is this uh, nudity gratuitous? Is it um, is it in good taste? Is it, is it in good taste? Is it exploitative? Is it necessary, you know, thematically to tell the story? And like, I mean, this movie it pretty clearly is, and that's what they decided. And that's why, you know, the movie is able to be viewed and bought and, and everything, but as is. Yeah. Um, right. Right. And yeah, I, I really want to know where you're going with this because it, I, I, there's some, uh, there's some like irony around, I have some thoughts, but but I'm I'm sorry to cut. Oh, you off. but yeah, to go all the way back to, um, no, I don't think it would be so simple as to say like, oh, we're shooting the girls like ladies and like these, you know, alluring nymphs or something, and we're shooting the men like strong warriors and going out and hunting and all that stuff. Like, I I think it a lot of it is just kind of the reality of the story and what the characters are. Like, it, it kind of it would be odd to shoot them at least the text of the film justifies the way that they're being shot, I suppose would be the quickest way to describe that. Yeah. Right. Um, but um, yeah, what were you getting at with the, the whole hullabaloo about the, um, the upsetting imagery in this film or the irony well, behind that? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, like Western cultures get like a real big stick up the ass about any kind of nudity, even if it's not sexual. Like there's no sexual nudity in this movie. No. Um, other than the tree that I mentioned earlier. And there's, I mean, there's a couple shots where you can tell she's kind of checking out his junk. He kind of looks at her butt once, but it's like, okay, I mean, they're teenagers staring at each other. That's fine. Right. Yeah. Again, nature documentary starring people. <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of the classic thing that people bring up to like, you know, talk shit about uh, kind of Western puritanical priorities where it's like the nudity is like, has this whole, you know, hubbub, but like, just the fact that this movie paints this picture of like, oh, wow, like <laughs> English colonizers just fucking destroyed Aboriginal culture in a massively violent way just gets like peppered over. Right. It's like, yeah, we're watching the aftermath of the rape of an entire continent. And like, that's fine. You can see that. That's not upsetting at all. But like right. a butt cheek is abhorrent or or even there was um there was pushback and uh outcry i guess would be as intense what i would use is like over animal cruelty in this and the way the animals were shot in this mm. as well where yeah. that only go that almost the irony goes then into real life where it's you know this shit happens all the time every time you eat a cheeseburger or a chicken breast or something like that how do you think that got to your plate and i think that's what's so brilliant about that cut of um the boy's about to bring his club down on the kangaroo to uh, finish it off. And then it immediately gets intercut with a butcher with a giant butcher cleaver chopping up some ribs, which I have to assume is kangaroo. Like I actually did have a lot of kangaroo meat when I was out there. It's pretty tasty. Oh yeah. But so those kangaroos get fucking jacked too. Oh, a yeah. lot of, there's a lot also, of meat there. What, what you're saying about like, Oh, everything wants to kill you. That's the other irony too, is like kangaroos are actually the thing. If something's going to kill you, it's a kangaroo. And it's the same thing as out here. It's not that they're going to attack you. It's that you'll be driving out on the highway or something and you hit one and it like absolutely yeah. destroys you and your car. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the outcry behind that of like where the outcry should have really been were those shots of the water buffalo, like where the corpses were just left there by uh, yeah. hunters completely like discarded and not used for anything, just kind of killed for sport. And it reminded me of western settlers would do that in north america too where they pretty much hunted buffalo into extinction not for their furs or for their meat or for resources they literally did it just so native americans can't hunt them and to like make them die off faster and Jeez. i can't i wouldn't be surprised that there wasn't a similar uh phenomenon that happened in australia too so it's like we're all upset over the way that animals are treated in this film, but it's like, what about the way that the natural life has been treated for like the last 200 years by uh, the same culture that you have lineage with? Yeah. Right. And like how, and, you know, of course we can't look at that. How dare like, no, we can't uh, see any imagery that even suggests that or has us reckon with that. Yeah. Well, the way he's hunting, it's like, I mean, obviously it's very small scale, but I, I would assume that like, that meat was used, you know, in like much the same way that it would have been if it would have been, you know, butchered in the city mm -hmm. or, or, you know, nearby the city. And I mean, again, uh, I'll I've said it so many times, it's like a nature documentary about people. I mean, that's what nature documentaries feature is hunting. Yeah. And like yeah. the hunting that we see other than like, you know, the, the scene where 
uh, you know, those, those, uh, those Western hunters, you know, big game hunters go and shoot the water Buffalo. Like that's, you know, obviously there to be viewed as abhorrent. And uh, yeah, the, the, the scenes of like the lizards being hunted, the kangaroo being hunted, it's all like literally fair game, right? <laughs> like yeah. uh, in, in the li- most literal terms. And yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think this movie gets a lot of like a huge amount of um, sort of derision for the, the the nudity or like, or the, the animal stuff compared to some other movies that probably deserve it more. Mm-hmm. Um, that, well, it's funny. Now also got a lot of uh, pushback about its nudity. Oh or yeah. 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 Um, which, you know, is a beautiful scene. <laughs> Like absolutely stunning. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, you know, I, I can definitely see the like, like a, the kind of moral outrage, like just tr- wanting to protect it, like an actual child, right? Right. Like, yeah. like and and you know, but she, I, you know, she she talks about it on the on the commentary on the DVD or the Blu-ray, what what have you, where she never felt exploited, and she felt like she was a, you know, she was crafting those scenes right along with Rogue, and. Um, that it was, you know, an amazing experience for her. And I mean, it's pretty much really all that matters is how she feels about it as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I mean, thematically just like it it all works so well to tell the story too. that. Like the movie would be, you know, like just the idea of sanitizing this movie seems really wrong. And it would be almost against the ethos of what the film is trying to get at too. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Literally about break, breaking down the, the, you know the the shackles of society yeah right yeah, yeah. big big part of it's that's a big societal shackle is the just uh the hemming and hawing over you know people's bodies well and even uh like more broadly it's just like the way that we police our own desires or the desires of others or how we present ourselves in that way like yeah of course like our bodies and sexuality is the uh, probably the most hot button issue one, but just everything from like, what's the proper clothes to wear? What kind of language yeah. do we use? Like we all speak English, but you know, you can't use like African-American vernacular in a, uh, in a university setting that's considered lesser where I remember I was reading this book by bell hooks. And that's like, that was like one of the big things that she realized when getting into academia is she essentially had to code switch from speaking like me essentially to speaking how she speaks at home. And they're almost they're they're almost different languages or they they function uh very yeah. differently and and they have different strengths and weaknesses but the idea that you can't even bring this like for her what would be the like her natural way of speaking is somehow lesser or lower form of uh intellectual conversation is it's just yeah, it's the chauvinism that we see on display uh in walkabout or that's being explored yep yeah well, I think that that about does it. I, I want to get into recommendations, and uh, I'm, I'm I took a really different approach to recommendations Ooh. this time because uh, I want to point out an example of here. Here's a recommendation: a movie to avoid ah, because fun, fun, it's fun. actually substanceless and exploitative, even though uh, it sort of explores similar themes on a very kind of surface level of like. This is what happens when, uh, you know, high society types have to go and and be savages. But it is like an actual just shitty exploitative. The hunt? Um, no, uh, <laughs> it's the movie The Blue Lagoon. The Blue Lagoon. 
yeah, it is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And uh, it's like very much just. Oh, I already know. Yep. Yep. Once I looked it up, I was even thinking, I was like, wait, what about that movie where Brooke Shields got pretty much exploited? We should talk about that one, too. And nope, there we go. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> that's a perfect example. Like if uh, anyone happens to be up at arms about walkabout, no, direct your derision towards the Blue Lagoon because <laughs> it's actually uh, deserves that derision in the for the for the reasons that, you know, on us on the surface, you could you could point at walkabout for. Yeah. 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 And I think. I think even my mom was talking to me about this a couple weeks or a couple months ago or something. There was like a Netflix documentary or some think piece or something about Brooke Shields talking about this or like maybe an autobiography or a memoir uh, where she got into much more detail about like not only that experience, but then the legacy of that of like when you were, you know, publicly exploited sexually as a child like that, like what that does to your image in Hollywood for the rest of your life or what that does for how people even perceive you for the rest of your life. Yeah, really, really fucking sad. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I wanted to point that out as like a really good example of like proper derision, <laughs> directing it where it deserves. Yeah. So for one of mine, I was I'll start with the one that comes out since I was born. This one came out in 2019, and I don't know why how this even got on my radar. To check out, but I'm really glad I did. And I think part of it was this. Uh, title that panic of the disco would blush at in length um it's mother i am suffocating this is my last film about you and it's a film by a lesothan so from lesotho director who now lives in germany and basically it's a film about his relationship to his mother who lives a much more traditional lifestyle in lesotho and his position as someone who grew up in that context, but now is, you know, part of like the high art scene in Germany. He's a he's an avant-garde film director talking to all these other fancy pants direct, but mostly Western directors and his like troubling relationship with that, where he sees a lot wrong with his culture. He sees a lot that he doesn't like, which is why he left. But yet he doesn't want to lose it. He has this deep uh, conflicting uh, like deeply contradictory feelings towards his mother who then represents like the culture he came from and and how he need like how he even positions himself now as someone who uh effectively has left Lesotho for good because like there's no film industry there so he's got to be somewhere else to do his job um and and being sort of not a token but like now he is the one Lesothan director that anyone would know and what that position looks like and like he's in such a really human way, like uh, like we would talk about all the way back with Bakshi, like he's warts and alling it, where he's showing how he's picking up some of the colonizers' ideas of what his own people are like, and he's reflecting that back, and then real like, and also like realizing in real time like what he's doing, and like this like almost inherent self hatred that he can't avoid just by being in that position. So I think it it really shows like similar to walk about it's showing these divides it's showing i mean him he's a, a manifestation almost of both sides and how to navigate that um i thought it's uh i think it's on canopy still right now it's on what? oh yeah it's on canopy right now one more time what's what's it called <laughs> mother i am suff or mother i am suffocating this is my last film about you by lemohang jeremiah mosese awesome it's uh it's an excellent one it's it's very much uh for 
those who want to check it out. It's only it's only seventy six minutes, but it's very very art film. So just be warned in in that sense. Um, yeah. Well, we talked about Skinnamarink at least here. <laughs> that is true. Oh wow, we almost went a whole half hour without saying Skinnamarink. Skinnamarink's half an hour longer than that. <laughs> But the other one I'll recommend from before I was born, this one actually, it was the first movie I watched during lockdown because I don't know if you had the same uh, experience, but once lockdown hit, all of a sudden you're like, I have gobs of time. So now I need to watch every stupid long movie that I oh, yeah. never really had time to really sit down with. And the first thing I watched was Vim Vendors Until the End of the World. Uh, do you know that one? Nope. Never even heard that name before. Vim Vendors? He did, um, oh, what's his big one? It just fell out of my head. It's Angels. Um, well, he did Paris, Texas, and he did Wings of Desire. Those are the two big ones that, if you know anything by him, oh, he's excellent. I, I recommend anything that he's made, at least the ones I've seen. But it is a, I'm looking up, it is 158 minutes, so that clocks in at just under three hours. I think, no, no, there, no, sorry, the one on Criterion was a full four hours. Like, there's a director's cut that's, like, oh. way longer. I think there's the theatrical cut that I'm looking at right now for its time. Um, and it's basically this really long, plodding road movie that's in a, a really charming, like, 90s techno dystopia. So, like, our their idea of, like, what the near future would look like. So, it, like, it looked very much like there's a lot of, I can't describe it better than, like, like it's very Gucci looking. I don't know how yeah. to describe it. Um, but it ends in uh, the Australian outback, and it, and and actually, it also ha- uh, features David. Uh, I just forgot how to say his last Gupalil. name. Yeah, yeah. Um, it features him in there as well, which I thought was a cool like connection between this film too. And yeah, it's kind of plodding along. It does a lot of a lot of pastiche and a lot of homage to like road trips and like. Uh, spy thrillers and things like that but ultimately when you get to the very end of the road which is kind of uh, I think it's an interesting move that he ends it in the Australian Outback which is like a very like primal place or a place that symbolizes that or like you know human or humanity's like origins of sorts I think that's what he's trying to draw on Um, and it shoots the Outback very similar like there's no way he didn't see walkabout and look at the way that the Outback in Australia is depicted and wanted to thematically uh, fold that within his story. So yeah, until the end of the world, if you got four hours to kill also a really fun one. Nice. That's great. Well, I've got just one more and uh, also took a different route here and not recommending a movie, but just for like an absolutely like public school classic example of like a survival slash adventure story that ends up being more about themes of identity, race, coming of age, what it means to be quote unquote free and civilized, but also just, you know, very appropriate for kids who really ought to be exposed to conversations like this. Can I guess? Read, read, yeah. Huck Finn. Huck Finn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm glad we we're on the same page with that. Yeah, um, I mean, if you're uh, if you're in the ninth grade right now and you're listening to this and you haven't read Huck Finn, read Huck Finn. If you're in the ninth grade and you're listening to this, I think you're a cool guy or gal or somewhere in between. Good job. Yeah, you're 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 going places in life. If you <laughs> listen to an hour and a half of um, us talking about 1971 Australian film with uh, real real heady conversation topics you're way cooler than i was uh, actually there's a really fun i listened to that in audiobook when i it was one season where i was 
driving around a lot for baseball and uh, elijah wood does it uh huck Ooh, finn. yeah that was a awesome. really good uh really Man. good for that but yeah go some on. audio uh, huck finn and walkabout what why would you pair them i already described enough of why i would pair them they've got <laughs> they've got similar bones <laughs> i i just I really want to hear that audiobook with Elijah Wood now. In fact, I just want to compile as many audiobooks read by the cast of The Lord of the Rings as I can. Particularly, I am so excited to listen to Andy Serkis doing The Hobbit. Ooh, that's fun. I'm just I'm just like imagining like okay, like he's reading this, it's Andy Serkis, but then he gets to the scene with Gollum. He must do the voice, right? He does. I would assume so. That'd be fucking weird if he didn't. Yeah, it would almost be more jarring if he didn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I could talk about The Hobbit and Andy Circus all day, but I think it's time to about wrap this up. Thanks for listening. For Concessions, I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. If you've learned nothing else from this episode and this film, it's to make sure your mating dance is on point.